Um, Chief must think we're talking about an executive session. <laughs> okay. Um, welcome to the Lawrence, Kansas City Commission meeting for Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022. The City Commission will immediately recess into closed executive session for approximately 30 minutes. The remaining items will be considered starting at 545 or as soon thereafter as may be practicable. Um, I will entertain a motion. I would move we recess in executive session for approximately 30 minutes to discuss privileged legal communications from the city's attorneys regarding the terms of a contract pursuant to KSA 754319B2. Justification for the executive session is to keep attorney-client privilege matters confidential at this time. The City Commission will resume its regular meeting in the City Commission room at approximately 5.31 after the executive session is concluded. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. All those opposed? None. It passes five to zero. We will recess at this time. I make a motion to recess into executive session for approximately 10 minutes to discuss privileged legal communication from the city's attorneys regarding the terms of a contract pursuant to KSA 754319B2. The justification for the executive session is to keep uh, keep attorney attorney client privileges privileged matters confidential at this time. The city commission will resume its regular meeting in the city commission at approximately 5:45 after the exec executive session is concluded. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. That's three to zero. Thank you. Uh, we would like to welcome everyone back to the oops, uh, Tuesday, May 3rd. 2022 City Commission agenda for Lawrence, Kansas. Um, first, I will have some opening um, explanation of how our meetings work from Sherry Riedemann. Oh, I apologize. Yes, we do need to report. Um, we have nothing to report. <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you, Sherry. Uh, go ahead. Me first. Oh, Porter first. Uh, I'll I just talk about the Zoom meeting. Thank you, Mayor. Good evening, everybody. Everybody, I just have a few housekeeping items for the Zoom meeting tonight. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting unless you are speaking. The chat function for the meeting has been disabled. All chats will go directly to me. What now? Okay. Hang on just a second. Um, we need to have people in the lobby. Casey, if you take the remote and turn the volume up, and Kurt, is it connected? I think so. Other side. Test, test, test. 
They're not getting sound. Is that? <laughs> Can y'all hear us out there? Is it working? Sibilance, sibilance, nothing. Kurt, is it connected to your system? Yes. Um, Try that. Test, test, test. Did that work? Oh, yeah. oh, I'm seeing thumbs up. Excellent. Okay, great. Thank Thanks. you, everyone, Thanks for helping us with that. Thank you. Uh, to continue regarding the Zoom function of the meeting, um, I ask everybody to please re remember to mute yourself during the meeting unless you're speaking. The chat function for the meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. Unless you are participating in the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on the screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting. When you're participating in the meeting, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send me a chat. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. And now I'll turn the meeting back over to Mayor Shipley. Thank you so much, Porter. Um, now I think we'll go to Sherry for some other uh, comments about public comment. Thank you, Mayor. Um, so when the mayor calls for public com for in-person public comment, individuals attending in-person should approach the podium to indicate they wish to speak. The podium can be raised and lowered, and we encourage you to use this feature to ensure your comments are heard. Please remember to state your name before speaking, and there is a sign-in sheet. Uh, individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. When you are called on, please unmute and state your name before speaking, and all comments will be limited to three minutes. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you, Sherry. Uh, that brings us to approving the agenda. The City Commission reserves the right to amend, supplement, or reorder the agenda during the meeting. Are there any um, motions to change the agenda or approve the agenda? I move to approve the agenda. I second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Any of those opposed? <laughs> Passes five to zero. Um, that moves us on to our recognitions and proclamations. Our first proclamation is for Mary Emma Graham Jubilee Day. Uh, I hope she's here. I, I hope you'll come forward. I don't know if you'd like to speak first or if you'd like me to read your proclamation first, but it's certainly up to you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Okay. I'll read. I will read your proclamation. Thank you again for being here. I appreciate you. Um, Whereas for over 47 years, Dr. Mary Emma Graham has unselfishly and without self-promotion shared her gifts and talents to bring nobility and distinction to the profession of teaching, especially in boosting the education of undergraduate and graduate students, as well as non-academic learners. And whereas Dr. Graham has created a research profile of such magnitude that she has been recognized nationally and internationally, not only for her individual accomplishments, but for her commitment to cooperative and team projects, as well as an uncanny ability to win numerous highly competitive grants, as from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Mellon Foundation, and the American Council of Learned Societies to fund institutes, seminars, and workshops to train the next generation of scholars and teachers. 
And whereas Dr. Graham has epitomized the concept of service starting in undergraduate school at Payne College through her university distinguished professorship at the University of Kansas and blurring the boundaries that too often separate town and gown, thus creating a mutually supportive learning community. And whereas Dr. Graham has proven to be a visionary when she founded the project on the history of black writing in 1983 to realize her commitment to literary recovery work in black studies, innovative scholarship in book history and digital humanities, professional development and curriculum transformation and public literacy programming. And whereas Dr. Graham has been a devout and appreciative citizen of Lawrence by promoting such arts and civic activities as Humanities Kansas, the Lawrence Arts Center and National African American Quilt Museum and St. Luke's AME historical preservation effort, as well as making our city a welcoming host to celebrated visitors such as the award-winning writer Alice Walker and the renowned actor Danny Glover. Now therefore I, Courtney Shipley, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, do hereby proclaim Sunday, May 1st, 2022 as Mary Emma Graham Jubilee Day and celebrate the retirement of the esteemed Dr. Mary Emma Graham, her contributions to Lawrence, the University of Kansas, and the profession of higher education have been enormous. For all she's done, we offer our congratulations and gratitude. Thank you so Thank much you for so being much. here. Our next item is to proclaim Thursday, May 5th, 2022, as Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Persons. Is there someone who is here to come forward? Thank you. Hello, hello. My name is Robert Higgs Jr. I'm a member of the Pyramid Pew Tribe of Nixon, Nevada. And on behalf of the MRIW Actions for Justice Committee, we should to acknowledge Abigail McCorwa Jones for co-authoring the MRIW proclamation being read today, May 3rd, 2022. Marco Kwa worked alongside Representative Christina Hazard and Concrete Victors in writing the proclamation. We respect the diligent work of these three indigenous women as we honor our missing murdered indigenous relatives. Violence against indigenous people in the United States is a crisis, but the extent of the problem remains unknown. In 2020, more than 9,500 cases involving indigenous people were reported, and nearly 1,500 were still active cases at the end of 2020. The lack of overall data is only one of the issues that local MMIW advocate groups and tribes have been talking about for years. And now that the MMIW crisis has more of a national spotlight, uh, <clears throat> Federal and state entities are starting to pay attention. In some tribal communities, indigenous women face murder rates that are more than 10 times the national average, according to the Department of Justice. In 2017, homicide was reported as the fourth leading cause of death among indigenous women between the ages of one and 19 years, and the sixth leading cause of death for ages 20 to 44, according to the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention. In a report from the National Institute of Justice, 84% of indigenous women experience violence in their lifetime, compared to the 71% of white women. 
Savannah's Act directs the Justice Department to review, revise, and develop law enforcement and justice protocols to address missing and murdered Indigenous people. Some of the requirements for Savannah's Act include having the Attorney General, in cooperation with the Secretary of the Interior, consult with the tribes on how to improve tribal data relevance and access to databases. The Justice Department also needs to provide training to law enforcement agencies on how to record tribal enrollment or or victims in federal databases, as well as develop and implement a strategy to educate the public. Violence against Native people is not an epidemic. An epidemic is biological and blameless. Violence against Native people is historical and political, bounded by oppression and colonial violence. We want to do more than just survive, and we seek nothing more than human dignity and nothing less than justice. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Uh, I want to make sure there's, I'll give one other person if there's anyone else who wants to speak. We're good. Okay. Excellent. Thank you all uh, for coming. I appreciate that you all walked here. So good job. Um, proclamation. Whereas there is not a comprehensive estimate of indigenous women, girls, and persons who are missing. <sighs> Sorry, everyone, and murdered in the United States. But many factors contribute to the crisis, such as fear, stigma, legal barriers, racism, sexism, and devastating levels of violence in the US. And whereas, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, homicide is the third leading cause of death among indigenous women and girls between 10 and 24 years of age, and the fifth leading cause of death for indigenous women between 25. <laughs> 34 years of age. Excuse me. I apologize. Whereas in 2016, the National Crime Information Center reported nearly 6,000 cases of missing American, Indian, and Alaska Native women and girls, but the U.S. Department of Justice was tracking only about 100 cases. And whereas still little data exists on the number of missing Indigenous women, girls, and persons in the United States, there have been instances of violence towards indigenous women and girls from four Kansas Native American tribes. And whereas on July 1st, 2021, a law became effective allowing the Kansas Attorney General to coordinate training for law enforcement agencies on missing and murdered indigenous people. And whereas we honor the lives of missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and persons whose cases are documented and undocumented in public records and the media and demonstrate solidarity with families and victims in light of those tragedies. Now, therefore, I, Courtney Shipley, Mayor, City of Lawrence, Kansas, do hereby proclaim Thursday, May 5th, 2022, as Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Persons Awareness Day, and call upon all City of Lawrence citizens to commemorate the lives of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and persons, and call attention to the many missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and persons, as well as all those who have experienced violence and assault, and resolve to act to prevent further victimization. Thank you all for being here. Um, next, I would like to proclaim Friday, May 6th, 2022, Provider Appreciation Day. Is there someone here to speak for that? 
Oh, please go ahead. Hi, my name is Marie Taylor, and I am the director of the Provider Academy for Community Children's Center. On behalf of the Early Childhood Community of Lawrence, I would like to sincerely thank you for the proclamation for Provider Appreciation Day on Friday, May 6th. To show our support, we're going green on Friday. If there is a child care provider that has personally touched your family, show them so how much they mean to you by wearing green on Friday. We're hoping that kids do too. How incredible would it be if family child cares and centers around our community are full of children wearing green on Friday to support their teachers? Thank you very much for this proclamation. It is foundational work that our child care providers are giving this community, and we would like to personally thank you for recognizing them. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you being here. Okay, uh, proclamation. Whereas Child Care Aware of America and other organizations nationwide are recognizing child care providers on this day, and whereas over half the children under the age of six nationwide are estimated to, be to spend some time in a non-parental care arrangement on a weekly basis, which provides critical enrichment opportunities and nurtures development for children of all backgrounds and is a vital building block for our state economy. And whereas the COVID-19 pandemic has created tremendous hardship for child care providers and the families of Kansas who depend on them, who have continued to meet the needs of families while risking their health and financial stability to remain open. And whereas Kansas recognizes these hardships and has provided such needed relief to providers to help sustain the viability of child care by implementing the Child Care Health Consultant Network, the Child Care Sustainability Grant Program, and expanding the HERO Relief Program. And whereas the future depends on the quality of the early childhood care childhood experiences provided to young children today supported for high quality child care represents a worthy commitment to our children's future now therefore i courtney shipley mayor of the city of lawrence kansas to hereby proclaim friday may 6 2022 provider appreciation day and urge all citizens to recognize child care providers for their important work Thank you so much for being here. Um, and next we have a welcome for our new Director of Municipal Services and Operations, Melissa Sieben. Hopefully she's here somewhere online. She's right here. There's your better. Oh, you're here. Oh all right. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Melissa Sieben, and I started late last Friday uh, officially with my duties as the Municipal Services and Operations Director, and I'm excited to be here tonight um, to see you all in person, and I look forward to um, serving the City of Lawrence and the Commission. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yes. We're excited for you to be here. Really right. glad you're here. Right. <laughs> thank you. Yes. Okay. Uh, up next, we have the consent agenda. All matters listed on the consent agenda are considered under one motion and will be approved by one motion. There will be no separate discussion on those items. If discussion is desired, the item will be removed from the consent agenda and will be considered separately. Members of the public wishing to speak to an item that's been pulled off the consent agenda will be limited to three minutes for comments. Do we have anyone on the commission who would like to pull something from consent? Not seeing anything. Is there anyone in the room who would like to pull something from our consent agenda? Not seeing anyone. Uh, Sherry, is there anyone online? 
would like to remove something from our consent agenda. I'm sorry. No, Mayor. Seriously? I was predicting at least one person. <laughs> Nothing? We got an email. Okay. Yeah. I'm shocked. Okay. It's ready to go. Are we sure? All right. Um, going once, going twice. Um, do we uh, have any motions? <laughs> I move for approval of the consent agenda. Second. I have a first and a second. Uh, all those in favor? Aye. 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 Uh, that passes five to zero. Wow. Now what happened there? Hey. Okay. Hey. Uh, hold on a minute. Scroll down. I wasn't prepared for that either. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> apologize, everyone. Uh, next, we have public comment. <laughs> public is allowed to speak on items or issues that are not scheduled for discussion on the agenda. As a general practice, the commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on items presented during this time. Individuals should address all comments and questions to the commission. Each person will be limited to three minutes. Do we have anyone for public comment? My name is Dr. Justin Spies. I have a PhD in lifespan human development, a master's degree in marriage and family therapy, both from Kansas State. And I have a bachelor's in addiction counseling from Washburn University. I taught as an assistant professor at Washburn in the Family and Human Services Department for six years. I was a licensed marriage uh, and family therapist and licensed master addiction counselor here in Kansas through the BSRB and have worked as both in the past. I was a board member of the BSRB Addiction Counseling Subcommittee and served as a secretary for the SDA Care Center Board here in Lawrence, where prior to that, I worked as a child therapist for children who had been sexually abused. I served in the United States Navy Submarine Service from 2000 to 2009 on the Fast Tech Submarine USS Springfield out of Groton, Connecticut. When I got out of the Navy in 2009, I was a first-class petty officer in E6. I'm now running for the Douglas County District 1 Commissioner seat, currently held by Patrick Kelly. So why am I running? Well, there's lots of reasons, but one of them is that I never used to pay any attention to local politics until COVID hit. But when it hit, I realized right away that the macro system See, I can say the word system too. But I'm talking about Bronfenbrenner. You know anything about him? Probably not. <clears throat> so decisions made in the macro system run downhill. We all know that, but it became real during COVID when policies made on the federal level rolled closer and closer to us. And when they got to the micro level, local government, these clowns, the county commissioners, all those clowns, if there was no one there to resist any of the mandates, the illegal mandates, the abusive mandates, if there was no one there in local offices stand up and say no, then it all just rolled full force into our lives, and it did. So here I am. Not only will I fight for all of our freedoms and against everything these clowns stand for, I'll enjoy it. I'll fucking love it, man. It will give me strength and nourish my soul to resist these motherfuckers at every possible turn. Mayor Shipley, you recently tweeted that if Elon Musk bought Twitter, that you'd delete your Twitter account. He bought it, but of course you haven't deleted it. Let's set aside the fact that your reaction to this news was what I'd expect from a 15-year-old spoiled brat not getting her way and that you need to grow the fuck up. But more importantly, I think we should know why you don't support free speech. So why don't you support free speech, Courtney? I know you won't answer me. You're the mayor of a large liberal university city. Why don't you support free speech? Because you didn't get your way? Welcome to the club. The difference between me and you is I don't whine and cry and make false promises about shit online. I fight back. 
Where's your conviction? Where's your courage? Ain't got none. Why you think that over Courtney? Here's a question for all you up there on uh, up there. Back in September, I was attacked, assaulted, battered, and, and stole from while I was protesting child mask mandates outside of Sunset Hill Elementary here in, uh, here in town. I was standing on the corner minding my business when a car pulled up out of nowhere, parked illegally in a school zone, uh, crosswalk zone uh, during uh, school drop-off hours. Hopped out of his car, walked up to me, and unprovoked took my signs out of my hand and attempted to swing the sign at me. The entire incident was caught on a neighbor's security camera across the street in KCTV5 out of Kansas City, ran a news report on it and everything. Fine. Go check it out. Thank you, sir. Any you can email me your answer. Any other public comment? Yeah, I got some public comment. Michael, Lawrence Countability. You know, I've been coming here quite a while talking about some pretty serious issues. I've never treated you guys with disrespect, but I still get ignored. I just challenge that because it really doesn't matter whether it's Justin Spees up here yelling fuck this and shit that and all that. We still get ignored. Tonight I'm here to talk about the most recent exoneration of LPD. Y'all have seen the video. I sent it to you. Sergeant Neff came to my neighborhood, was asked his name, and decided to be a smartass. Got the exonerations here. They knew who I was. I'm sure some of you at least can recognize my truck when I drive around town. They chose to wake me up knowing who I was and then refused to identify. I inquired to find out some information about some OPA records and find out why they, they, they were exonerated, requested the emails. One of those emails I got is what's about to be given to you. In this email, Casey Cooper, the head of OPA, assigned this investigation to a couple patrol lieutenants. Now, if you don't remember, several months ago, I published a video about where Troy was telling us these things are handled at the patrol level. When there's an OPA investigation, there's all kinds of writing. Things get documented. But these things get handled at the patrol level. Ryan Halstead is Sergeant Neff's direct supervisor. That's not best practice when it comes to accountability on a police force. That's another situation where we have patrol investigating themselves. That's happened before. It happened in the summer of 2020 when the officers decided to make an investigation out of us because we wanted accountability for the actions of Brad Williams. And instead in the last couple of years, I filmed officers going above and beyond the call of duty when it comes to excessive force. Walking up to houses, prowling around them, and then knocking for several minutes without identifying. When a subject comes to the door, they throw him to the ground without telling what, he's, what they're there for, and it's exonerated. Another rest downtown, exonerated when an officer comes in and puts the knees on a back of a man who'd been complaining of back pain unprovoked. There was no violence happening until that officer got there. I'd like to sue. I have the money. I have the will. I was ready to go to court, fully ready today to go to court. But apparently I don't have enough public controversy. And I'm sorry, but Mayor Shipley, I really wish I could see that kind of sympathy you showed toward those two guys Fine. that got beat up by the police. 
Those are our citizens. Thank you. Is there any other public comment in the room? Hello, uh, Mayor Shipley, um, members of the City Commission. My name is Ranch Cun Bailey. Um, I am uh, Dr. Graham's son. Uh, I'm also a you know proud Mustang alum of Central Junior High and also Lawrence High. My brother's also uh, a uh, alum of Lawrence um, High as well. Uh, so on behalf of the family, just want to thank you for the proclamation. Um, we have been trying to shower her mom and celebrate her her career, uh, but other things I just wanted to, to highlight. Um, so for one. Um, one of the things that mom, and I think it may come up in the proclamation, is she's done a lot of work with uh, with the schools here in Lawrence and, and workshops that have benefited teachers that I've had um, um, in moving here and, and the decision to, you know, attend, decision to send me uh, when we moved here in 90, uh, I moved here in 99, she moved here in 98, uh, being sent to, to Central Junior High. So in general, just wanted to say thank you so much for this, uh, for this a proclamation um, and just wanted to salute my mom as well on behalf of the family. So thank you so much. Um, let's make sure there's no other public comment in the room. Uh, let's look online to make sure there's no online public comment. No, Mayor. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, man. Make up the comments. Yes, you can make up a comment. Thank you. I was not able to get online. Oh, no. Oh. Okay. Porter sent me a message saying I was online, but it never opened. Oh, okay. And I emailed you all and got no response. Sorry, I'm out of breath. It's okay. Keep that off. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Allman with Sustainability Action Network. First of all, I'd like to request that you reopen Consent Agenda D7C. I think that's the one. <laughs> Excuse me. I don't know what the protocol would be for that. But that's what I'm here to speak about. <laughs> uh, from the 4 January commission meeting discussing discussion, you know the background of the green pavement issue. The commission approved $382,000 in 2020 for green pavement at 151 intersections of shared use paths with streets and commercial driveways, Project CI-210002. Engineering staff has not complied and instead used some of those funds for a consultant in an attempt to discredit green pavement for shared use path intersections. Green colored pavement is universally accepted standard for all bikeways. However, what's at issue here is that that project specifies green pavement for shared use path intersections and engineering staff doesn't like that use. 
to bypass the commission's desire to enhance the visibility and safety of bicyclists and others at SUP crossings, staff has proposed three rationales. They claim the federal highway interpretation of the manual of uniform traffic control devices as prohibiting green pavement for SUP intersections. Not only is this uh, only an interpretation, but it's interim while the MUTCUD is being revised. And even now, the types of facilities that MUTCUD okay for green pavement includes other bicycle traffic conflict areas, which surely can be a shared use path. And there are other manuals too from AASHTO and NACTO that we can go by. Engineering staff makes the absurd claim that shared use paths are not bikeways because pedestrians also use them. By that pretzel logic, those facilities along, um, alongside most streets are not sidewalks because bicyclists use them. Uh, well, I'd like to point out that Lawrence still has no exclusively dedicated bikeways. They're all shared in some fashion with other modes, sidewalks, lanes in the street, bicycle boulevards, and yes, shared use paths. It's our, they are our bikeways by choice. Uh, staff also claims Federal Highway will disqualify us from funding if we use green pavement in these situations. It's a red herring. It's not federally funded anyway. So there's nothing stopping Lawrence from using green pavement at shared use path crossings. But staff is trying to derail it by forming a new policy prohibiting it. They have a preordained conclusion before creating the policy. Having told the Multimodal Transportation Commission uh, that they don't intend to install the project CI-2102. That's, so you see they're approaching it backwards. I, so I'm sorry. Um, do not, um, whatever the request is in that, uh, oh, to change the scope of that project, keep the project for installing it, the 151 locations and proceed. Thank you. And I don't know if you can, backtrack or but that's no, so anyway yeah. <laughs> thank you no. michael thank you for coming michael i guess we'll talk about it with staff thank you thank you thank you uh, any other uh online i'm sorry with him not being able to access the zoom isn't a legitimate point for him to open that back up i don't know sherry uh, we do have a statement at the top of the agenda, Mayor, that says that this is not the primary way for accessing or participating in the meeting and access um, that way cannot be guaranteed. Well, we'll discuss it with staff. Um, that's all I can posit. Um, there's no more uh, comment here in the room and no more online. Uh, we will be moving on to our, well, we did have a work session that is deferred. Uh, we'll be work, moving on to our regular agenda item number one, which is to receive the 2022 Community Development Block Grant and Home Investment Partnership Program funding recommendations and 2022 annual action plan and hold a public hearing regarding the recommendations and the 2022 annual action plan, which opens the 30-day public comment period. Good evening, Mayor Commissioners. Uh, this is Danny Walters, and I'm with the Housing Initiatives Division for the city. 
Um, the item before you tonight is the receipt of the 2022 program year funding recommendations for the Community Development Block Grant and the Home Investment Partnership Program. In addition to receiving the recommendations, tonight is the public hearing for the 2022 program year. Brad Carr, who is our Community Development Analyst, will lead you through a presentation on the item, and then following that, we would ask that you open the public hearing portion. After the public hearing closes, Brad and I will both be here to answer any questions that you or others might have about the item. So with that, I will turn it over to Brad. Hi, this is Brad Carr, Community Development Analyst. Um, Porter, can I please share my screen? Go ahead, Brad. All right, Are every, is everybody able to see the slides? All right, uh, as Danny said, um, I'm Brad Carr. I'm the Community Development Analyst in the Housing Initiatives Division of Planning and Development Services. And our agenda item tonight is to present the funding recommendations for the Community Development Block Grant and the Home Investment Partnerships 2022 program year and to hold a HUD required public hearing on our 2022 annual action plan. Um, there are some items attached to the agenda item tonight, including an investment summary with the recommended funding allocations, um, a draft of the 2022 annual action plan, and also a staff memo describing the application and the funding recommendation process. As noted in our annual action plan, HUD has not released the actual allocation amounts to be received by the city at this time. So all dollar amounts that we're discussing today and that are discussed in the plan are estimated numbers. HUD has issued guidance to us that for us to proceed with these estimated working numbers throughout this public hearing process, and then to update the plan when the actual grant numbers are released. We have indicated in the action plan how an increase or a decrease in funding will be addressed for each of these grants. Uh, per the adopted citizen participation plan, the city conducts two public hearings a year to obtain citizen views and comments and to respond to proposals and questions. Such meetings will be conducted at two different times of the program year and together we'll cover the topics of housing and community development needs, uh, development of proposed activities and strategies, and also a review of the past program performance. This public hearing tonight covers the upcoming 2022 grant year, which begins August 1st of 2022. The second public hearing will be held with the Affordable Housing Advisory Board during the fall, and that looks at the results of our 2021 program year, which ends July 31st of 2022. And also during that fall hearing, uh, we hold uh, a planning process for our upcoming 2023 program year. Um, this slide provides uh, the timeline for citizen participation for today's public hearing. Um, the public comment period on this 2022 annual action plan and the recommended investment summary begins today, and then it ends in 30 days on June 30th of 2022. Um, in the plan, there's uh, directions on how the public can submit comments and all comments that are received during this time period 
are added to the action plan before it's submitted to HUD. Um, the recommendation process, um, the CDBG home allocation and recommendation procedures uh, were created to outline the methodology of funding allocation recommendations for the city of Lawrence. These procedures went into effect beginning with the 2020 CDBG and home program year, which began August 1st of 2020. Uh, the city commission reaffirmed the use of this process and the scoring matrix again for this 2020 upcoming 2022 program year. The recommendation process does include some automatic allocations, which include funding for city programs and also administration for both grants. The home funding was recommended by the Affordable Housing Advisory Board at their March 14th, 2022 meeting and a city staff team recommended the CDBG public service allocations. And we'll go through those soon. Um, on the home grant side, um, the Home Investment Partnership Program, with that acronym HOME, um, is the largest federal BROC grant designed exclusively to provide affordable housing for low-income households. Um, the base home grant that the city is estimated to receive is $450,000. Per the allocation and recommendation procedures, the home administration line is automatically applied at the regulatory, regulatory cap of 10%, so $45,000. As shown on this slide, uh, the AHAB provided their recommendations for the remaining amount of the home grant funding. Uh, two items of note that I'll run through with you are that the city is required that a minimum of 15% of the base grant must be allocated to the city's community housing development organizations, uh, another acronym known as a CHODO, uh, for which we currently do have one here in town, and that's tenants to homeowners. Um, so at a minimum of 15% of the grant has to be awarded to them. Um, and then a maximum of 5% of the grant can also be awarded to them for operating expenses, which helps their day-to-day -day operations in delivering home and home eligible activities. As you can see, the projects that received recommended allocations include the uh, Tenants to Homeowners First-Time Homebuyer Assistance Program, which includes down payment assistance and both project and closing cost subsidies for income-eligible first-time homebuyers. The Lawrence Douglas County Housing Authority uh, for tenant-based rental assistance, and that's a HUD-approved voucher program that has a focus on moving homeless households into housing under a 24-month program which also includes a component of case management. And then those last two that we discussed, uh, the CHODO project funds, which is that um, MAC minimum of 15% that's required to be allocated. And then also the CHODO operating funds. Um, the AHAB did recommend funding uh, at the maximum operating funds of 22,500 and the minimum 15% of project funds at 67,500. Um, this table and chart are just for your reference, and it shows uh, the city's past home funding over the previous 10 years. And now we'll move on to the CDBG side. Uh, the Community Development Block Grant, CDBG, uh, provides annual grants on a formula basis to entitlement cities and counties to develop viable urban communities to provide decent housing and suitable living environments and by expanding economic opportunities, principally for low and moderate income persons. 
The base CDBG grant for 2022 is estimated at 750,000. Added to that total is the city's anticipated program income, which is estimated at 100,000 and reallocation funds of 250,000 for a total amount available of 1.1 million. Uh, program income is returned to the city in the form of loan payments and loan payoffs from previous CDBG loan programs. And program reallocation is carried over from previous grant years when that program income comes over, comes in over our estimated totals, um, or when projects come in under budget or as projects are canceled. Um, per the allocation and procedures uh, document, the CDBG administration and city programs are automatically allocated. Administration is figured at their regulatory cap of 20% of the base grant. And the city programs are funded at roughly around 75% of the funds that are not including administration or the optional public service all allocation. And we'll get to that here soon. The remaining roughly 25% of the grant is available on a competitive application basis. And if that 20% is not fully utilized, the remaining funds go uh, back to that city programs line item. Uh, so for a further breakdown of those automatic allocations, the housing initiatives uh, programs include comprehensive housing rehabilitation, weatherization and emergency and furnace loans. And then it also covers staff costs for delivery of those and other programs under the both CDBG and home. Staff also reached out to several city departments that may have projects that would fall under the eligibility of CDBG to discuss uh, possible projects uh, with us that they have upcoming. And we're currently working with MSO on street restoration and sidewalk gap program opportunities, as well as with parks and recreation for some potential parks and trail projects. Um, just as a reminder, all city programs that are funded still must continue to meet the CDBG national objectives of serving low and moderate income individuals and has to meet all eligibility requirements, including an environmental review. Uh, so for that roughly 25% of the pot that was discussed that was available for non-public service competitive grants, uh, there was only one application received that this year. And it's recommended that we're uh, it receives full funding because um, we estimate that we'll have adequate funds available. And that application was from Good Life Innovations and they've requested funding to replace exterior doors and windows in nine of their residential group homes here in Lawrence. And the final pot of money that we'll discuss is that public service uh, category. And so under CDBG regulations, the city can optionally allow to use up to 15% of that base CDBG grant for public services. Uh, so I'll just quickly run through some examples of what CDBG defines as public services, and that would be childcare, healthcare, job training, uh, services for homeless persons, services for senior citizens, and also drug abuse counseling and treatment. Uh, due to that regulatory 15% cap, funds from those other pots of money that we discussed cannot be moved into and applied to this public service category. And so if the city commission decides to allocate the maximum 15% of that base grant to public services, the estimated amount available would be $112,500.
And so a city staff team reviewed the four applications that were received for public service activities. And they have provided uh, these recommendations. Um, housing and credit counseling for their housing and financial counseling program. Um, the housing stabilization collaborative for emergency rent and utility assistance. Uh, the Lawrence Community Shelter for stabilization services for shelter guests and the Willow Domestic Violence Center uh, Community Housing Case Management. And so you can see that we received a little over 170,000 requests with our estimated only available to award of 112,500. Uh, once again, here are past CDBG funded over the last 10 years. Uh, one thing to note here is that in previous years, there were multiple agencies that were awarded funding uh, for emergency rent and utility assistance programs. Um, but this year they have collaborated together in that housing stabilization collaborative. And I'll just run through some quick next steps um, would be to hold a public hearing this evening on the 2022 annual action plan and investment summary. And then that public comment period is open until June 3rd. The final recommendations and all public comment that we receive will come back to the City Commission on June 7th to consider for final adoption. And after final adoption, the plan is then submitted to HUD by June 15th for their review. And as Danny and I said, we are here to happy to answer any questions that you have. And if we could just go ahead and proceed on opening that public hearing. If I, Mayor, I'm sorry, if I could add one thing before before we do that. Um, we did receive two additional um, applications from two neighborhood groups. One was East Lawrence, and then the other was Brook Creek Neighborhood Association. We have um, combined their applications with the city programs because they both um, are working with MSO. So um, just in case there was any question, because I know that there was some uh, letters attached that spoke to that East Lawrence application. And then also, um, we did note the Brook Creek application included in there as well. So. Are there any questions from the commission? I have one question on the um, past CDBG public service line. There's an indication that Catholic Charities received $15,000. Um, we had also provided funding for them to do some uh, application review for utility assistance. Is that that money or is this a separate pot of money? Uh, this is Danny Walters with the community, or the, sorry, the Housing Initiatives Division. Um, that is a separate pot of money. This was just for emergency and rental assistance. And this is one of those that has rolled into the Housing Stabilization Collaborative. Thank you. Any other questions? Uh, I think we still need to do public comment on this, even though we're um, moving towards opening it up. Is there any uh, public comment in the room? Is there any public comment online on this item? Oh, sorry. Okay, it's okay. <laughs> Uh, no, Mayor. We're not saying anything. I do have another question from our commissioner. You know, I was looking at the page that shows the allocation, the, the spreadsheet that shows the allocation, and um, you have a list down here of potential city projects. 
are these projects that are definitely going to be done with that um, city money or is 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 these are just possibilities it says potential but i'm wondering if these are definitely on there because i know we got some um, support for that elna traffic markings this is Danny Walters with the Housing Initiatives Division. Um, those are uh, I, the two that we received applications for, East Lawrence and Brook Creek. Um, those are, are definitely included in that. I think that some of the other ones are more flexible depending on what, what the needs become as the, as the year progresses. Okay. I, I would just add, this is Brad Carr, Community Development Analyst. I would just add that we do still have to complete environmental reviews on, on all of those projects. Um, and we also would have to determine uh, national objective eligibility to show that they're serving low and moderate income individuals. Okay, thank you. Any other questions or discussion with commissioners? Just Commissioner Sellers, I have one quick question. And Danny, I don't know if, if for Danny or Brad who can answer it. Um, just for point of information, did we receive any um, HUD home dollars through the Recovery Act? This is Danny Walters with the Housing Initiatives Division. We did. Uh, we have 1.6 million that uh, we are currently working through a, uh, a plan to put together the allocation plan. So a, a plan for the plan at this point. Um, a lot of it's going to be based on the needs assessment that comes in. So, uh, and we're, we're also working with the county and making sure that we have collaborative projects happening so yes that's that's a separate pot of money from the money that we're talking about here though okay thank you You're any other discussion with commissioners okay then i would enter entertain a motion i would move that we receive the 20 2022 Community Development Block Grant and Home Investment Partnership Program funding recommendations and the 2022 Annual Action Plan and hold a public um, hearing regarding the recommendations and the 2022 Annual Action Plan, which opens the 30-day public comment period. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. All those opposed? That passes five to zero. Um, we have three more items. Um, if it wouldn't bother anyone since we've been working since 530 and we have three items left, could we just have a break and then come back and finish it all up? Does that work for you all? Thank you so much. Come along. Huh? Oh, well, 10 minutes? Back. 10 minutes, yes. 10 minutes. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. Let's return to the Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022 Lawrence City Commission meeting. Um, our next item is regular agenda item number two, which I have scrolled down from. Consider adopting resolution 7421, appointing a steering committee to advise, review, and provide feedback on the consultant within the framework of the project scope through the process of updating or revising the land development code for the city. Good evening. Uh, I'm Brandon Thorngate. I'm a planning and development analyst. Um, I am I'm here before you uh, with this item. It was last in front of you um, on April 19th when you authorized the city manager to execute the professional services agreement with the consultant. Um, however, we received some public comment from uh, Multimodal Transportation Commission and Live Well Douglas County uh, regarding seats on the steering committee. So uh, we deferred this resolution to bring it back to you tonight. 
Um, I, I don't have a presentation for you about this. Um, really, um, this resolution establishing the steering committee is setting, um, I, I guess, the, the, the seats and the groups or organizations that would be represented by those seats on the steering committee. Um, this is not necessarily appointing specific individuals yet. Um, we'll have time to do that once this resolution is adopted um, and we can put it out for um, uh, the ability for people to apply for interest for any at-large seats or anything like that. Um, but with that, I'm here to answer any questions you have about um, the makeup or the background um, of how we got to this point. Thank you. Are there any questions from the commission? All right, let's uh, see if there's any public comment from the audience. Let's see, is there any public comment online for this item? Nick Kuzmiak? You all hear me all right? All right. Good evening, commissioners. My name is Nick Kuzmiak. Address is 1228 Delaware Street, and I'm here representing the Multimodal Transportation Commission. Uh, finally known as MMTC. So I first wanted to thank you all on acting on, on last meeting's consent agenda item and taking a closer look at the makeup of the potential steering committee for the land development code update. So I'm basically here to just, you know, reiterate the main points of my correspondence from last time and be available for questions if you happen to have any. The main gist of MMTC's position is that transportation and land use are inextricably linked. And we believe it would be prudent for the city to appoint a representative from MMTC to the steering committee in order to ensure that this link is considered at all points in the code update process. What I neglected to mention in my previous comment was that I also believe the other suggested groups could indeed offer some valuable perspectives on how land use affects other important aspects of the community. Uh, for example, the Affordable Housing Advisory Board works diligently on that particularly critical part of the housing supply. Sustainability Advisory Board covers environmental issues that are all affected by land use decisions. And Livewell Douglas County brings a relevant public health perspective to how our built environment affects citizens' well-being. Um, it's certainly up to you to weigh the benefits of having these four additional perspectives, including us on the MMTC, against the larger committee than may have been originally intended. But I should note that the downtown master plan steering uh, committee had nearly 20 members on it, while covering a significantly smaller scope and area than this code rewrite for the entire city. Regardless, I trust your judgment, and I'm definitely looking forward to uh, following this important project over the coming months. Thanks very much. Bobby Flory. Good evening, commissioners. <clears throat> I'm here tonight to um, ask that you consider expanding the steering committee for the development code process. Um, it's been over 15 years since we've been able to um, work on the development code to get a new one. So it's pretty exciting time. And I wanna make sure that we fully take advantage of this opportunity. This is a technical document. It's the consultant's job to make it user-friendly, but I think that we are missing some, um, I think there are local resources that we need to include in this that are that need to be more prominent on this committee. Right now, there is one position for a design professional and one position for a construction professional. I think there needs to be at least two engineers, two land use planning engineers on this committee, as well as an architect. Those are different, um, different types of professionals, but they 
they work with the development code. They are hands-on working with the development code on a regular basis. They can bring creativity, insight, and their local professional resources to this project. So I think only including one design professional is a huge oversight when we're working on our community's development code. The other, um, the other position is a construction professional. I think that should be expanded to be one developer and one builder. Those are also, again, different professions and they bring different aspects to the table. Um, and they also work with the development code on a regular basis. So I think we really need to take better advantage of the local resources we have and expand and include those additional uh, professionals in the steering committee. It's, it's um, not that we wouldn't all get public comment on this at some point, but in the steering committee, it's pretty critical into the direction that this plan goes is the work done at the level before it even gets to public comment and public input. That's why I think it's really important to have those professionals on this committee. Thank you. Any other comments from online? Uh, that's all I see, Mayor. Thank you. Okay. Let's bring it back for discussion. Um, so, I don't know. My first thing that I saw was a city commission representative serving as chair. And some commissioners who've been here longer than I will remember there being a discussion of taking commissioners off certain boards um, because you might vote on it later and it being sort of double dealing or directing a board. So I wondered if we should have a conversation about that or if it's just no different as another commissioner suggested, there were commissioners on the 2040 or whatever. Is, is it the same? How does that, how do we, do we think that's okay? I think on steering committees, it's, it is a little bit different. And so that's why I think it's a, a value to have a commissioner on there um, as, as part of that process um, to lead it, to guide it through as the chair. Um, on the commissions, I can also understand on when we have them for committees or commissions, whatever you call them, I can understand why that some of that was pulled back where, where commissioners on on that because of the of the you know various situations that could arise out of that. So I'm I think on a steering committee it's important because this is going to be a plan that has a huge impact on our community. And I think having a commissioner chair it is um, very appropriate in this situation. Any other thoughts from commissioners? Um yeah I I would be fine with it as well just because it's just granted it is the commissioner but it's only one seat. Um, and they would be the chair, so they would be tasked with moving the um, the committee along. So I would, from that perspective, I would be fine with it as well. Yeah, I mean, I think we'll soon have a discussion on boards and commissions. And I might <laughs> yes, have an opinion are. about yeah. what we do with uh, city commissioners on boards that also have county commissioners, for example, on it. I'm not sure. Um, I'm in agreement the way we made that change before, but I do think, I mean, the history of steering committees, um, you know, um, plan 2040 back when we did um, transportation um, 2030, I think, when I was on the planning commission, he was chaired by city commissioner. Yeah. So I think we've done the steering committees. Um, that is a pretty common 
um, position to have on them. Okay. Um, any other spots you all felt like needed to be added to? Um, I am interested in having the M MTC represented as well as the sustainability board represented. And I'm, I'm open to affordable housing as well as some of you know, the discussion. I'm welcome to have that discussion that um, adding some of the other professionals potentially. I mean, I would like us also to consider um, if we're going to be adding folks is to consider on the real estate side, moving that just to one position versus two potentially. Well, kind of what I thought was if you added, right? well, first of all, I wasn't sure what they meant by design professional. I didn't know what all that encompassed in their mind. Was it just an architect? Is it engineer? So unpacking that, then I thought, well, it would be good if that was, if you were going to have two real estate agents, certainly make it equal in engineers. So I'm, I guess I'm engaging you in that same yeah. space. I mean, make them an equal number. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, I think we do have to be careful because then we, do we select two for each position? I mean, like two, yeah, again, two I, people. Again, I wasn't sure what they yeah, meant by um, design professional. Yeah, and I don't know. I don't. Well, yeah, I guess my thought, I do agree that, uh, you know, a design <coughs> professional can, can certainly be a architect, but that's also a lot different than a, you know, someone who does utilities and does stormwater. And so to me, I think we need one of each because that's a very technical, both of those are very technical. And I think we want some some feedback. So I would I would support a, an architect, you know, and an engineer. Um, and I think the same is true for a developer and a home builder. I think those are very different. Um, yeah, I didn't. But I also agree um, with Commissioner Lawson. I'm not sure the real estate representatives have that same yeah technical part of the development code um as some of those you know i mean real estate agents have some under you know maybe lay persons but I, I think one real estate person would be enough for me if we went with those others but you would be for example amenable to a builder and a developer so to say in, in as much as those might be uh people with different um Views is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I'm thinking. I, I think we should have we should have an an architect and an engineer and a developer and a home builder, so four positions. Take two and make them four. Would that replace the design and construction professional? Since it kind yes, of falls yes. in those areas, we would take those two and make, make them, them four. four. Okay. Make them more defined. Make those more yeah. defined. Take those two positions and make them four. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then I think you could take one of the real estate, take the two real estate and right. combine it into one. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I'm certainly, I mean, MMTC Sustainability Ahab, I'm, you know, I, I understand their role and I'm not opposed to adding them. I do think, you know, usually the way this works is we start, we, we sometimes send these drafts to those committees you know, for feedback as well. So we are going to get some of that. I, at least I expect we will. Mm -hmm. And so again, I'm not opposed to putting some of them on the committee, but I don't think they all have to be on that on the committee because they'll all get their shot at it at one point. Well, then what I also wondered was since we are trying to look at everything through our lens. particular lens, was sustainability an assumption? 
And so, but then I, yeah, see, I see yeah. your face. I'm yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah. <laughs> so, but, but then who, yeah. uh, who's, who who's, works through that with them? Or as you said, it comes to sustainability later, or is, uh, is the sustainability champion, the champion on that? How, how, how is that intended to play out? Cause I, this might be a little different than what we've done in yeah. the past. Yeah. Did we get an answer on defining the at-large representative on this? Anybody. I didn't. I'm assuming it can be anybody we chose in the city or the mayor, I should say. Would you like more than one at-large person? I think we could remedy some of this with an at-large, having an additional at-large uh, representative. Only because I, I know we started the conversation with who could potentially take the place of someone who could fill this gap. And I know with steering committees, you know, there's usually a sweet spot as far as your membership. You know, you can be as gregarious as 21 members. You can be as conservative as nine members. And I haven't really heard us discuss where do we feel a comfortable spot would be, a comfortable number would be for our steering committee. Because this was, again, presented to us as one possible composition. Yeah. But I think we need to build that composition with a number in mind as how many people do we want to be a part of this steering committee? Well, I will tell you, uh, the master plan we did for the Parks and Rec, we had 17 on that one. Right. So, yeah. Um, and I would I would ask as well, uh, Nick, Nick brought up a great point uh, regarding the, the downtown master plans uh, steering committee and the number of that steering committee. Uh, do we... Could, would we be able to learn the composition of that? I, it, it escapes me right now. Um, was was it similar to what we're thinking here for the development plan? Um, I'm I'm trying to find that. I don't know it off the top of my head. Maybe Jeff, I see, is on the call. He might remember it better than I do. While I try to look it up. Uh, and sorry, this is Brandon, a uh, planning development analyst. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> So right now, if we go with adding the MMTC and the sustainability, we're looking at 12 along with the expansion of those two positions. That's, yeah. And we haven't, that's without the commission. That's, yeah. And I know we haven't discussed the um, Affordable Housing Advisory Board. But I do believe someone in that capacity or speaks to that realm. If we don't think they can fit in an at-large, I think calling out a specific commission that needs to be represented, board or commission on here, I would like to see the, the Affordable Housing Advisory Board be the representative from there. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. I agree. I'm, I think we're, at least I hope, it sounds like we're all in consensus that, you know, those those boards would be, I'm not sure about sustainability, although I would, I would prefer that we have a champion regarding sustainability on there, somebody that could actually drive it and uh, have that top of mind. But uh, it sounds like all the other recommendations we seem to be in agreement on. Yeah, and um, and to your point, um, Brad, um, about these groups, these commissions will get a shot at it, which they will. Yeah, I think it goes back to what Bobby Flores said, and everybody can come in public comment. Everybody can can comment on what's been decided, but to actually be at the table when those decisions are being made, I think that's really important. And again, I think what we're talking about now would put the committee at 13, which yeah. is a good number. I mean, it's not overwhelming number. We certainly had more on others. Mm-hmm. Commissioners, if I may, Jeff Craig with Planning Development Services did have a list of individuals for the downtown plan if Commissioner Littlejohn would still like that information. Yes, absolutely. Uh, just curious. 
So the, the list, and I will try to read this and, and not stumble and hopefully get them all in the right order. It was a representative from the East Lawrence Neighborhood Association, an Oread neighborhood representative, an Old West Lawrence Neighborhood Association representative, a Pinckney Neighborhood Association representative, North Lawrence Neighborhood representative, Explore Lawrence, At Large, Lawrence Cultural Arts Commission, Historic Resources Commission, an architect position, a developer position, a excuse me, a planning commissioner, a downtown Lawrence Inc. position, a downtown business owner tenant position, <laughs> downtown residential owner and tenant, downtown property owner at large, an affordable housing advisory board member, and a Lawrence Chamber of Commerce member. Okay. That's more than 13. Yes. <laughs> I'm just, I'm sorry to make you do that, Jeff. I just actually wanted to see if you'd do that, but. Um, but I think they only met. Can you go through that one more time, please? <laughs> I think they only I'm met happy twice. To. If I remember right, Diane, that group only met twice, I think. I believe the board met, it was scheduled to meet three times, and I believe they ultimately met four times uh, due to COVID. Okay. Okay. And um, I, just as a comparison, the, the steering com committee for Plan 24 met over 50 times yeah. right. in that period. So I can see this being comparable to lengthy discussions. So, how how big was that steering committee? I don't know. I don't, I don't remember. Something. Commissioner, I believe that steering committee was was 10 members strong. Sit 10. Okay. So I, I don't think what we've got here is donors. I'm comfortable. So I just, for staff's sake, I'm gonna make sure they got what we decided to add, which was MMTC, AHAB, um, so developer and home builder taking one spot for the design, an architect and engineer. Is uh, Did I get all those? And a SAB, sustainability. Sustainability. Oh, okay, we did decide, okay. And, I, and I, squeezing I, the real estate down to one? One. Yeah. Okay. Um, that, should put as a, that would put us a 13. Yep. And one at large. That was about to say, Commissioner. Two at large. I thought Two Commissioner. Okay. okay. Sellers suggested an at large. Yeah. So if we I did think. a new at large, that'd be 14. If you had the Commissioner. If you had the Commissioner. Yeah. Yeah, you keep the Commissioner. That'd be 14. Do we need not? We need not. We need not. number. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Neighborhood. <laughs> I'm not opposed to just having one at large. I just, if it's, if the scope of that definition is pretty broad, then I think there's some opportunities to capture whoever that would be, whether it's a, a, a community member or someone from an additional board or commission. That's up to the. Us. Yeah. yeah. But if we leave that way, it'd be 13, which does seem better than 14. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thank you. Or you can make the commissioner non-voting. That's true. Yeah. That yeah, then fun. that would solve my yeah. concern. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Non-voting. Just. Is that unusual to do that? What is the question? Sherry? The commissioner uh, would be non-voting. Just chair the committee. So I mean, is that unusual? Any thoughts on that staff? Anybody from staff? What sort of... Um, Unattended consequences is that is there any that you can think of? Uh, of what of the fifteen? Or? No. If we had 
two at large, and then the city commissioner who was the chair was just non-voting. So we would still have an odd number. We need the odd number to vote. Okay. I don't think so. I think that would work great. That'd be fine with me. You like that? I like the idea of two at large. Mm -hmm. okay. That's good. Okay. Okay, what other issues were there besides the makeup? Can I just repeat that just yeah. to make sure I have it? Because Brandon, you're, you're wanting this adopted with the changes or are you gonna bring this back with the changes? If the commission is comfortable with it, uh, it would be great to have it adopted with the changes, but if they would prefer to see it back, I can do that as well. Just okay. changes. And I just want to make sure that I have it. So it'll be one city commission representative that is uh, um, as the chair, but not voting. Uh, one um, Douglas County Planning Commission representative, an architect, an engineer, a developer, a home builder. Um, one real estate representative. Do you want to identify whether that is commercial or residential or just leave that open? Just okay. leave it open. Um, one Lawrence know. Chamber of Commerce representative two at-large representatives, an MTC, a sustainability, and an AHAB representative. Did you get the Neighborhood Association member? What one, Jerry? I didn't. Which one? Neighborhood Association. Yeah, it's a land oh. one. That's yeah, it's still on okay. there. She just didn't say it. Okay, I didn't hear. Yeah. She didn't oh, I'm it. sorry. It was on there. Okay. Already on the list. Oh, yep. Right. So the um, sorry, I had those under one bullet. Yes, Lawrence Association of Neighborhoods representative. Got it. Okay, so I'm so I'm good. I would make that motion. <laughs> I would second that motion. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Uh, Aye. Uh, that passes five to is that, a, is that a good enough motion? <laughs> it is. Okay. Good. I would say um, it it <clears throat> may seem even to myself, um, uh, a task to appoint those people all at the same time, but to make clear to my other commissioners, I'm very much open to your um, yeah. your feelings and advice that I trust you and I hold you in high regard. So if you also know of people that you think would be great in that position, I hope you will in no way hold back in, in informing me <laughs> of someone you would like to see. Oh, thank that. you. Challenge accepted. Um, Let's move on then to item number three, consider authorizing the city manager to execute a professional services agreement with Withers Ravenel in the amount of $1,602,010 for the development of a citywide asset management policy and strategic asset management plan. All right, let's do that. Uh, hello, commissioners. This is Darren Haig. I am the asset and innovation manager with MSO. And Porter, would you be able to share my screen for you my presentation? Be able to. There you go. Okay, can everybody see my screen? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I uh, this in this presentation, I'm going to provide a high-level overview of asset management and discuss the CIP project uh, MS twenty-two eighty nineteen. Um, in October of twenty twenty-one, we published RFP R2123, uh, Withers Ravenel was selected out of four respondents as a consultant after re reviewing the proposals and conducting an interview of the top two firms. Uh, this project will not only cover all of the MSO divisions, but also parks and rec, transit and parking. So it is more of an enterprise-wide 
um, initiative than just an MSO initiative. Uh, <clears throat> asset management is a strategy within the Connected City Outcomes. At its lowest levels, it will directly impact KPIs such as CC4, uh, 7, and 8. Not only will it help us achieve the lowest cost of ownership, such as cost per lane mile, it will also allow us to refine and achieve reliability goals with our other infrastructure systems. One thing to note on lowest life cycle cost. Um, the lowest life cycle cost could be more than we are currently spending on a program. So I just want to make sure that everybody's aware that lowest life cycle cost does not just mean it's, it's going to be less. It could, it could potentially say that we need to spend more. Um, this includes the acquisition, operation and maintenance, and disposal of an asset. Uh, as the asset management program grows and matures, uh, the program will impact many areas of the strategic plan other than just the listed KPIs. Pretty much anywhere where uh, infrastructure is involved, uh, asset management can, can impact the program. So in the general overview of asset management, I kind of wanted to show you some really dumbed down basic versions um, when you get into the more there's a lot more levels involved, but this is really breaking it down into three kind of simple groupings. Um, at the crawling stage, this is where our organization is, is really focused primarily on building workflow efficiencies and collecting information about our assets, such as where they are, what they are, the condition they're in. Um, we're obviously doing operation and maintenance activities, but the full life cycle of most of the assets hasn't been identified. And some asset management practices may be occurring in small amounts, but it's in the very early stages. Um, as we progress, uh, we, we get to the walking stage. Um, so at this, at this level, we're really working on building those workflow efficiencies. Oh, uh, and initial data, uh, initial data collection is really kind of it's not completed, but um, we've really done the, the back work on knowing where our assets are. We've identified what we need to inspect. So we might still be collecting some uh, condition uh, data, but we're really now focused more on the maintenance management, um, you know, approving those efficiencies and asset, man and asset maintenance plans. Um, we are starting to develop some asset management plans as well. And we're thinking about the whole life cycle. When we're talking about maintenance, we're not thinking of the year-to-year -year or the day-to-day -day work. We're really thinking about the entire life of that asset, not just what we need to do today, but maybe what we need to do in 20 years. Um, as we progress further as an organization, we're, we're beginning to run. Um, you know, at this stage, uh, asset management plans have been activated um, and to Kind of let you know what an asset management plan. So it's really uh, a specific plan for an asset or a group of assets. Um, you know, maybe the water division uh, has a, their specific set of assets, and that this asset management plan is really kind of detailing out how we are going to afford to uh, pay for all the maintenance and replacement of our assets over the course of their lives. Um, <clears throat> So the life cycle models are fully developed. 
they're being optimized and asset management principles are well-defined. As these lifecycle models are developed, we can start uh, projecting budgets further out than we normally do, and we can find future funding shortfalls and identify financial planning uh, to, in, in preparation for these shortfalls. In work and, and operations and management, they're still going on, um, but they're in a state of continual improvement at this point. So we're collecting data, but it's not a, a massive push. So what I mean by massive push is the current uh, stormwater inspection and collection project that is going on with uh, Trek. So that is in that, that large work management, collecting a lot of information about our assets. So this is, you know, a diagram of a really general overview of an asset management program for a community such as ours. The project that we are talking about right now is in the green zone. So with this project, we'll develop an asset management policy as well as a strategic asset management plan and objectives. Uh, strategic asset management plan is kind of wordy. You can also call it an asset management strategy. Uh, the CityWorks project that is currently replacing the current uh, work order management system is in phase one, is highlighted in, in the blue. So we have two projects that are really um, trying to bolster our asset management within the city. They're going to take a, a big chunk of what we're missing um, over the next couple of years. Future projects, as you see in the purple, are developing those, those more specific asset management plans and then implementing those plans. And so that's more related to the actual life cycle activities of specific assets. And then there is continuous improvement. So the, the policy, the asset management plan, as well as everything else are considered living documents. They're not meant to be just written in one year and um, that's the, the way of the land. So in the policy, we'll usually um, highlight a, a review period. It can be every year, it can be every two years, where we go back and look at these and look at what's worked, what's not. Maybe something in our strategic plan has changed and we need to modify our policy or our strategies. So let's talk about policy for a little bit. Uh, an asset management policy identifies organizational objectives and principles that will guide asset management. Uh, the purpose of this is to establish a clear direction in which decision makers want to go in future planning activities regarding assets and the services they provide. Um, it lays out mandatory requirements and high-level vision and goals and ties strategic goals to asset management goals. It can also determine what roles and responsibilities will exist within the organization. Now, I want to read this quote because it's very important and it's often overlooked, but asset management tools and technologies may be helpful, but the engagement of the workforce, the clarity of leadership and the collaboration between different departments and functions are the real differentiators of a leading asset management organization. And what that really means is the, the de development of the policy engages upper management and city commission. This builds trust, buy-in, and sets a direction from our leaders to the rest of the organization. Um, I've seen many plans falter because leadership wasn't on board. 
And this project really involves uh, the executive level as well as uh, city commission to make sure that the policies that we put in place are accepted by all. Um, this establishes a level of control and authority over the program and can really help drive that message through to the other to the work groups. Um, once this policy is in place, uh, the asset management strategy can develop can be developed. And during this process, um, the engagement of the workforce takes place and staff gain an understanding of asset management and their roles in the process. So it's in here a strategic asset management plan. We can we can call it asset management strategy, but it's really a comprehensive action plan that, that kind of guides the way that our organization wants to manage uh, our assets over time to ensure we're meeting those strategic objectives. Uh, <laughs> it typically can have a 10 to 100 year focus depending on the asset. Um, a car might last 10 years, a road or a, a sewer pipe might last 100 years. When we're talking about life cycle, we really need to start looking at the entire life of an asset, not just what we need to do now. Um, this document doesn't get into the day-to-day -day operations. That's more where the asset management plans come into place. Uh, but it does identify critical assets and summarizes the major initiatives, programs, and timelines that each division will need to follow. And these might be different for each organization or each division. Parks and Rec might have different timelines and programs based on their needs than the facility group within MSO. Uh, it assigns roles and responsibilities. And uh, the gap analysis part it is a really important piece of this. It, this really shows each division and department what they need to do and where they need to go. Um, it's really important that this is evaluated by a neutral party to ensure we're rated, uh, our, rating our maturity appropriately. Uh, we don't necessarily want to rate ourselves and how well we're doing. Uh, and this will really help guide what major initiatives each group has for, for the future. And then I want to talk about level of service. Now, I want to talk about this a little bit separately. Um, I know it's, it's thrown out there a lot, and I think sometimes there's a lot of confusion with what level of service really is. Um, as you can see by this example on this, on the sheet, um, for one, for a sample for the water system, you can have many different uh, levels of service. Within that, you have to be able to measure what level you're providing, and each level of service could be measured by more than more than one thing. As you can see, fire protection for this example, the measurements are flow testing, hydrant inspection frequency, and hydrant flushing frequency. Um, and then lastly, we need to define a target for what we would strive for. This target is where we can discern a little bit more information on the program. And I'll read this, this quote, in determining level of service, we must consider what we must provide, what we want to provide, and what we can afford to provide. And the, our targets are really kind of indicative of the service level we can afford to provide what we 
uh, versus what we want to provide. In other words, our service gap. Um, you know, we may want to put a playground on every block, but can we afford to do that? Likely not. So now, now we have to figure out what we can actually do, even if it's not completely what we want to do. And some of this gap can be closed through better management of our assets, which is the purpose of an asset management program. Uh, you know, this funding, and it could also be staffing um, gap, is part of our implied risk. You know, what level of risk are we willing to assume on an asset? And that risk can be defined in many ways, whether it's financial, health and safety, demand, etc. This is, you know, often parts that we would consider consequences of failure. So this is, you know, kind of the a basis of a strategy on the inner circle of our asset management wheel. Um, you know, we're planning on, on purchasing and installing an asset. Then we have to acquire it and operate and maintain it and then decommission it. And I kind of highlighted uh, the planning portion here. Um, so one of the issues with um, the life cycle is planning is usually one of the, the lower cost uh, parts of the life cycle of an asset, but it's also one of the most overlooked. So there are questions that we should be asking when we're planning on buying something or building it. Um, why do we need it? What function will it perform? Uh, what service will it deliver and for how long? Are other assets affected by it? Who will use it? Can we afford it? How will we acquire it? How will we dispose of it? And do we even have the right people to operate it? Um, are they properly trained? And how will we maintain it? So those are a lot of questions that we need to be asking ourselves when we are um, planning on uh, buying something. Uh, I like to liken it to the, the car analogy. You may have heard the car analogy. You buy a car, would you operate that car without ever changing the oil in it? You know, that comes down to that preventative maintenance. But in, when you're really talking about asset management, we're not really asking any of the rest of the questions of why do we, why do I need that car to begin with? And what, and what will I use it for? And can I afford it, not just the purchase price, but can I afford to maintain it and have it inspected and change the tires? Um, and how will I dispose of it? Will I run it to the end of its life? Or will I sell it after a few years and get um, use those returns for a new car? Um, you know, on a street, that's, you know, that's not really um, working. But if, when you're talking about maybe a pump or another vehicle that we're buying as an asset, that does become a question that we would ask. You know, how, how what is the best way to manage that asset? And the six what's of asset management, I really wanted to talk about six because that gets into risk. You know, some assets are more critical than others and the risk associated with the failure or compromised service is not acceptable. Uh, costly projects can also be riskier. And the answer to this question is really the basis of our capital and operating plans. Once these plans have been formulated, the question becomes, are they affordable? This is the link to the financial plan. In this sense, we can view capital and operating plans as prioritized wish lists. 
If they are to be realized, they must be affordable in the short and long term. And I and I hate stressing it every time, but the long term is really where we go because that leads right into question five on deferred maintenance. So if we look at this graph, you know, the red line is really kind of the worst case scenario. We build a we build an asset, we never do anything with it, and we just have to keep replacing it, you know, after 20 years, because by that time it's got so many potholes, nobody can drive on. The green line is representing an asset management life cycle model that we've developed. And the blue line is actually representing the actual work history up to the present day of that same road segment. Um, so 40, 50 years ago when this road was built, it, the future wasn't planned for it. We didn't think, we didn't ask the critical questions to know whether we could maintain it. We didn't have a plan in place. So we ended up doing a lot of expensive um, work on it. And we can see that we're we're not shaving a whole lot of money off that really worst case scenario. And if that path continued, we're, we're really kind of leveled off with that worst case scenario. Um, because there was no plan put in place, you know, in the boom area era where there was a lot of growth and a lot of building and not much planning for the future. And, you know, one of my big goals is to make sure that we're not doing this to our kids and grandkids, that we build a bunch of infrastructure that we can't afford 50 years down the road. Or that we may not need 50 years down the road. As back to the to you know the project, it it has a 10 to 12 month uh, timeline. Um, by about five months, we should have a policy that we'd be putting in front of city commission to ratify. Um, and at the end of 10 to 12 months, we should have our documents and everything. Our assessments are done, and we would have our final asset management strategy in place. And with that, you know, um, you know, the purpose of this was to give you some more information on our asset management program and the development that we're kind of trying to do. Um, I'd like to consider authorizing the city manager to execute a professional service agreement with Withers Ravenel in the amount of $162,910 for the development of a citywide asset management policy and strategic asset management plan. Um, some closing thoughts. Uh, the, the United States is really behind a lot of other countries in implementing asset management. Um, some other countries such as Canada actually require communities to have asset management plans for them to even receive federal funding. Now there's some really loose laws in the US right now about that maybe on the water side, um, but why they don't exist in any substantial form, I think we'd be remiss to believe that they won't come eventually and these will become required for all communities to have if they want to receive federal funding. And my ultimate goal with asset management in a few years is that we no longer actually mention asset management by name. That it's just kind of part of our community's culture and that it's just how we do work. Um, I'm, kind of, I'm really passionate about asset management and um, making sure that we're planning, not just for now, but in the future as well. And with that, I'll open it up for questions. 
Are there any questions from commissioners at this time? Darren, good, great presentation. Just a, a quick question. Um, you've act, with some of the things you said, it seems like you've done this before. Have you done this someplace else before coming to Lawrence? I, I used to work, oh, this is Darren Haig, um, Asset and Innovation Manager. So I did used to work with the city of Topeka. And oh. so there we uh, were, we went through this process and um, did develop an asset management policy and asset management strategy and life cycle models for roads and water, um, kind of developing out what the future would hold, how we were gonna manage our roads as far as after we build it, you know, this is the, you know, it's really kind of outlining, you know, at this point we need to crack seal it, at this point we need to um, overlay it, you know, really defining that, that full life of it and figuring out how much that road or, or pipe or other uh, infrastructure would cost. Great. And, thank you. Go ahead. <laughs> Dan, this is Commissioner Sellers. Real quick, you alluded to there are other countries that utilize um, asset management plans um, in order to receive federal government dollars. Do, and you kind of said with water, if I heard you correctly, there's some possibility of that or, or can you at least speak to do you see that happening with federal dollars here in the next few years or down the line? Uh, uh, this is Darren Haig, uh, Asset and Innovation Manager. So yes, so Canada is one where they do require um, asset management plans for a lot of federal funding. Um, it's really uh, big in Australia, New Zealand, Europe. Those are countries that are really way ahead of the curve. Uh, as far as the United States goes. With water right now, it's, if you look at the, the recent um, infrastructure bill from Congress, there are, there are some mentions of asset management for water funding. I, I think it's still kind of loosely, loosely, it's not like a full asset management plan. I think it's just having a general plan and not um, fully implemented plan. Um, I don't know if there are talks in Congress about instituting this, but I would, I, like I said, I think we would be remiss to think that it would, within the next five to 10 years that that wouldn't happen. As dollars get stretched, they're gonna wanna make sure that those dollars are being used appropriately. And I think that this would be the next step in that evolution. Got a question. Um, it, when we look at the assets through this through the lens of this plan, is are we going to look at equipment that just has a certain cost value? Like if it isn't over a hundred thousand, we're not going to be look at putting that into the asset plan, or is there any value category? Uh, this is Darren Haig, asset innovation manager. Uh, yes, yeah, so this would typically be um, with capital assets. So it wouldn't necessarily be um, low cost assets. It could be ex expanded to that in the future if it wanted to be, but typically asset management plans are for capital assets and not for the lower cost ones. Okay, thank you. One more question. I noticed in the um, CIP that through 2026 that we had, we're allocating $1.775 million to this asset management plan. Can you explain what those dollars are for other than the plan we're trying to put together? 
this is Darren Haig with Asset and Innovation Manager. So that is, uh, those are more program funds. So they'll, they'll be used for multiple things. A lot of what they'll be used for is after this, uh, after this SAMP is developed and it gives that guidance for each division on where they need to go. Some of those funds will be allocated towards, it could be allocated towards um, inspections or condition assessments, such as another round of PCI for streets, or if there are some facility um, condition assessments that need to be done, it could be, those dollars could be used towards that. Uh, and uh, some of the rest of the dollars will, will be used for the, the uh, rest of the phases of a CityWorks project. So the actual implementation and, and getting our work order management built. Okay. So funding right now that we've allocated towards doing those inspections, I know we did a bunch of work on the streets and sidewalks, um, doing inspections through LIDAR. Um, that money would now come from this, this line item? Some of that, yes. Some of it would. Okay, thank you. Any other questions? This time, I do kind of have a question about your infrastructure focus groups. Um, some of them are more straightforward than others and seem like um, since these will be completely staff led um, and in some situations, some outside input might be relevant. Um, so I wondered what your thoughts are about that or what staff's thoughts are about that. Darren Haig with the, uh, the Asset and Innovation Manager. Uh, so with that, and you're re re referring to the statement of work from Withers Ravenel, I, I believe. Yeah, so the those groups are really the 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 boots on the ground, the supervisors, and, and the leadership of those is really determining what the work is that they're currently doing, and you know, are they um, are they trained well enough to do uh, asset management? Do they know what their role is in asset management? Part of this project is to give uh, some. I'm trying to think of the word to make us do some of this. It's I, We didn't want to go into this and, and just have the consultant tell us here, this is what you're going to do. And, and we wanted to make sure that we were doing some of the work, we were doing the legwork, and that would get us, um, uh, the words are escaping me, but integrate us with, with the process better, if, if, that, if that makes sense. What I'm what I'm trying to figure out is, you know, staff sometimes is has only been allowed in the past historically to do the bare minimum, and so they've never asked, "What if I could do X, Y, and Z? What if I had this?" Or, and I'm wondering if this is one of those opportunities um, for them to voice that at a staff level, um, and then. Of course, there are um, community voices saying, well, we're not taking care of this at the level we would like. And also, we would offer help as, as you know, groups that were fundraising groups or something like that. Um, or finding outside resources, which changes the conversation completely. So I think kind of what I'm asking is, is staff allowed to look at the whole spectrum of opportunity or... 
Um, you know, if they've been working in the same space for many years and been told, no, you can't have money for that, are they really going to be able to to uh, think as broadly as they can and, and be as honest with us as they can about what's possible? Darren Haig, Asset Innovation Manager. I hope so. <laughs> I really do. Um, that is, you know, part of this program is to build that trust and to build that confidence at all levels that you can voice your opinion. You know, maybe you've been doing the same thing for 20 years and you know there's a better way to do it. <laughs> you know, nobody's said that. Uh, I, I really want that to be part of this project and that everybody's voice is heard and that we really do figure out the best way to manage these assets um, when we're putting together these plans. And, and that's really, where that level of service comes in, um, that target, you know, the target could be community expectations. You know, this is what the community wants from us. This is what we want to provide them. And, and that's where we find that gap, whether it be a staffing gap or a funding gap, or, or maybe a mismanagement of assets gap. Um, how do we close that? How do we get as close as we can to, to that expectation, whether it be an internal um, employee or, or a community member? And that's what we're really trying to get to. Thank you. Any other questions? Uh, let's see if there's any public comment. Is there anyone in the room who would like to make public comment? Let's see if there's anyone online who would like to comment on this item. There's no public comment, Mayor. Okay, let's bring it back. Uh, any conversation, any discussion among commissioners? I'll start. Um, I'm all for this. I think it's um, very key to, you know, part of our strategic plan is to make sure we spend money efficiently and wisely. Um, I think a good example I can give as to why I think we need an asset management plan. And since I've been on the commission, we've had to replace three water towers, which are pretty expensive dollar amounts. And when staff showed us pictures and brought reports to us, you know, one thing I noticed, like a couple of the water towers, they had holes in the ceiling, they had braces that were either either rusted out or even missing, is I wondered how did it get that way? What were we doing as a management um, of those assets to not do a better job of maintaining them over time? And could they have lasted longer if we would have had a maintenance plan in place? Could we have stretched those millions of dollars out over 10 years or 15 years versus having to deal with it in a short five years? Three water towers. So I am all for this and I, I believe it's we definitely need it in order to spend our money more efficiently and get you know in wisely i would jump in and say i'm forward as well um just uh to uh what commissioner sellers said in regards to federal dollars i believe that would help market us better if we have an asset management plan then they can see exactly what we're going to spend our money on and how we're going to spend our money and how we take care of our assets so uh, hopefully, uh, if there's any sort of de decision-making process in that, that would give us um, possibly an advantage uh, over some other community or other entity that didn't have an asset management plan. I can't add anything. I mean, I think it's a, I mean, it's something we we need to do. I'm excited about it. I'm a, I think I, I thought it was interesting when we one of the issues Darren brought up, you know, was the fact that 
um, we as a city commission and as an executive leadership need to be behind this so it you know trickles trickles down and and folks to your point mayo um you know employees all the way down understand it's an important issue and so um you know i, I think this will set that stage and i think that's an important um, stage we want to have set for our entire organization so i'm very excited about it Ditto. <laughs> all right uh any uh motions I move that we authorize the city manager to execute a professional services agreement with Withers Ravenel in the amount of $162,910 for the development of a citywide asset management policy and strategic asset management plan. I second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 That passes. Time to zero. Uh, our last regular agenda item is to receive the annual update from the fire medical department on their accreditation process. Good evening, commissioners. Uh, my name is Tom Fagan. I'm the interim fire chief and also the safe and secure outcome champion. Uh, we're here tonight to give the commission an update on fire medicals accreditation process. I'll speak just briefly uh, about this process. We're a learning organization and I am extremely proud uh, of all the men and women within our organization, internal within fire medical, and also across all city departments that really support the mission that we provide the community and support our process of continuous improvement. Because if it were not for all of them, uh, we would not be successful in this continuous improvement process. And so the key being uh, the terms continuous improvement, uh, accreditation meaning credible, um, we do the hard work of digging in and having the courage to look at where our gaps are, to identify where we need to improve for our community. And so tonight, um, I'm pleased to have our new accreditation manager with us, uh, Mackenzie Azell, who, we who wears so many hats uh, for our department and for the city, frankly, uh, extending into uh, other areas as well. And uh, she's just a tremendous uh, member of our team. And so with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Mackenzie and she's gonna give you an update on this process. Hello, I'm Mackenzie Azell and I am the new accreditation manager. So today we're just gonna do um, an accreditation update for 2022. And then um, I'm gonna run through it pretty quickly. I know that we're on kind of a tight timeline and then we'll have time at the end for questions. So any of the slides that I run through um, too quickly, we can go back to. So to kick it off, I wanted to start with who we are. Um, so right now, Chief Fagan and I are in front of you. However, um, we are not the department. Um, these are a few pictures of our department members and really show that today we might be talking about accreditation, but um, in the department, we say our continuous improvement system. Um, and that starts from, um, from the member or the employee level um, all the way up organization-wide. Um, so with that, <coughs> I'm going to start off just by talking about our ISO. Um, 
This is our insurance service offices rating. Currently, we are at a one. This year, we are actually being reevaluated. Um, what does this mean for anyone and everyone? Well, it impacts insurance rates. Um, and it really looks at the ability to effectively extinguish a structure fire. Um, so this is not directly in alignment with accreditation, but it's a kind of a fun thing to go along with it. Um, so we'll be going through that this year. So earlier, I guess early fall last year, we did a community-driven strategic plan. Um, with a part of this process, we had external stakeholder input. We had 54 external stakeholders that were a part of this um, information sharing, um, survey data collection, and that ranged from um, public sector, the private sector, um, our partnering um, emergency first responder agencies, um, a big group where I don't know if you remember the group that was used for Lawrence Listens, but we dove into that same um, that same group to reach out and get some information on how Lawrence Douglas County Fire Medical was doing um, and where we could be going in the future. So with this, we had the SIPSI Technical Advisor Program host this so that it wasn't us asking what can we do better. Um, and then virtual meetings were had and survey data was collected. On top of that, our internal group, we knew that we were going to have a work session um, where we could have 24 internal um, stakeholders. However, we wanted to give the opportunity to our entire membership to give their input. Um, so we had a good look in the mirror and had 92 internal stakeholders um, give us information about what needs to go into this strategic plan. And that was collected via survey data. So then we had a um, three-day stakeholder group work session um, facilitated again by TAP, the um, Technical Advisors Program. And we conducted a SWOT analysis while also reviewing the raw data from um, the survey from the intern internal input, um, and then also all of the external input. Um, with that, we created a, a business plan for LDCFM that was in alignment with the city's strategic plan. Um, so on the screen, we have six of our strategic goals that we're gonna be working towards. We've actually just started working towards goal number one, um, which during a poll was prioritized in the department to be um, kind of our kickoff goal. And so internal communications um, is what we are focusing on improving because the strategic plan definitely was a hard look in the mirror. Um, and it was very, very telling and gave great insight of what we need to be working on and where to go. Um, so within each of these goals, we have um, objectives and then also um, critical tasks that will be worked on by these um, specific groups that I'll kind of talk about later. Um, but it was really important from the very beginning for us to make sure that this aligned with the city of Lawrence's new strategic plan. Um, so we had a great experience working with TAP to say, hey, this is the city's strategic plan. Um, however, this process goes, um, we need to be sure that it is in alignment um, with everything that we do. Um, another part of the strategic alignment is the 2022 Community Risk Assessment Standards of Cover um, and the goals that are associated with that. And so that's a document that you guys have received before. Um, we're updating it to look at the community's risks, um, the means that we can mitigate those and the resiliency that, um, that the department has. And so um, that is currently in the process of being worked on. We just finished up our second round of training on that. Um, so more to come on that. 
So like I said earlier, um, we can talk about accreditation. I mean, we could talk about it all day, but this is the continuous improvement model that we have adopted. Um, and it puts a little bit more umph behind what we're actually doing. And so there's a graphic on your left, operate, analyze, and improve, and that's a cycle. And in the presentation right before this, we talked about um, how everything's a cycle and how we acknowledge that. Um, and if we are able to hit one benchmark, we have to create another one to work towards. So why are we here? Well, we're here because we have to be here. Um, no, but in all honesty, these are um, two of the criterion to um, maintain and improve response capabilities and things that we need to talk with you all about. Um, I know that a few weeks ago you were overloaded with response data. Um, and so today we're not going to dive into all of that, but more of the actual accreditation process in that model. Um, so what does this look like? In order for an accreditation process or a continuous improvement system to be successful, we, it needs to be institutionalized. Um, and so we've been on a um, an up and down roller coaster of this throughout the years. And it's really hard to get a full department um, in alignment with the city, also working with the county, um, kind of to work towards a business plan together. And so um, we have established some key roles um, and then also provided some training to help with this. Um, however, we're doing this every day and trying to expand um, what the accreditation process actually looks like, um, not only in what we do, but how we do it. And so um, we're opening up opportunities and finding opportunities where every, um, every member from our department, um, whether you're a civilian, whether you're three months on the job, or whether you're about to retire, um, have a, um, a say and a role in something that impacts um, where the department's going. Um, so just a quick note, what does this continuously look like for LDCFM? Well, we're working towards these recommendations that are established in all of the key documents. Um, process improvement to create positive movement towards response times benchmarks, because that's important. Um, and then also um, an SOP review and update schedule. So those are things that impact us every day. So annually, we complete an annual compliance report, which um, we actually just received notification today that it was approved and um, we are accredited for this year. Um, also, we do annual program evaluations that go along with that. So each of our program managers, which um, Chief Egan mentioned the whole hat scenario earlier, um, everyone in our department wears multiple hats. Um, and so our program uh, managers are either at the captain level or the chief officer level, and they're responsible for focusing on something specific. So one example would be hazmat. Um, we have one group that's designated to be um, reviewing and appraising um, what we put into that program, what we get out of it, um, as far as outputs and outcomes. So those evaluations go into the annual compliance report, and then we are able to bring those back up when we're creating the budget and say, hey, how is that working for us? Um, and what can we do differently to make it better? Um, also, we work towards the strategic plan goal critical task updates. Um, so again, like I said, we have a new strategic plan. Um, so we'll be writing to what we're doing, how we're doing it, um, and kind of next steps, just to document everything. And also um, to make sure that, that that document doesn't just end up on, um, on the shelf. So every three to five years, we have some guiding documents, um, the community-driven strategic plan, um, the risk assessment standards of cover, which we're doing right now, and then every five years, which is 
also this year. Um, we're doing a self-assessment manual, which I'll kind of dive into in a little bit, but basically we have um, 11 categories that range all over the place from um, evaluating our full department. Um, and we write to 250 um, progress indicators. So that's going on as we speak. Um, updating guiding documents, a peer team on site visit for verification validation. So basically we'll turn in all these documents um, we'll be assigned a peer team. They will virtually review those, ask us any questions before um, they deem us um, ready to come on site to review us. And then um, if they say everything looks good to go, we're gonna come on site. They will perform interviews, um, really just conduct an analysis to make sure whatever we've documented is um, validated and verified. And then if we get their blessing, we get to go to the public hearing. So Craig, hopefully you and I are sitting there next year. Um, so that happens every five years and that's kind of where we're at right now. So this is just a quick snapshot. Um, it's kind of small, so I know that you won't be able to see all the details, but basically um, this is what our accreditation process looks like this year. Um, and we have a lot of people that are contributing to this, have pieces and parts um, that they are focusing on, and then also some things that build into, um, into each other. So like I mentioned earlier that there's 11 categories. Um, so I'm showing this again, it's small text, so I apologize, but um, these are each of the things that we focus on when we're being evaluated um, for accredited, accredited status. Um, you can see that it's they're gonna ask us about governance and administration, um, technical rescue program, our water supply, information technology, health and safety, external systems and relationships. Um, so it's more than just the fire department. And even though we say the fire department will be writing to 250 um, performance indicators, the city, we all will be um, writing to those. And so um, McKinsey might have one view of the information technology. However, that might not be um, the most accurate view. And so I'll need to contact um, the IT department to really have them um, partner with me on writing towards this and really describing what this program looks like currently, um, appraising how it's been going for the department, um, and then also um, planning for the future of what, what we can do to make things better. Okay, so we have strategic recommendations. This is from our, um, our last accreditation um, report. And so we have strategic recommendations and we also have specific recommendations. And so the strategic ones align with the core competencies. So we have to do these things to maintain um, compliance with a, the accreditation um, cycle. Um, so there, you can see in your packet, you have quite a few slides of these. We're not going to run through all of them, but we can come back to them for questions. But I am going to focus on this one because um, 2C5 has four. Um, so the agency has identified the total response components for the delivery of systems in each service program area and found those services consistent and reliable within the entire response area. So response times. Um, we have been able to implement, fully implement one of the recommendations. We have partially implemented two of them um, and we have not implemented the fourth. However, there has been work um, to um, to show the need there. This goes through and shows our other strategic recommendations. Um, these two are partially implemented. The next two we have partially implemented and then the implemented. And then the next two we have an implemented and partially implemented. 
These are those specific recommendations, so not tied to core competencies. So here's an overview of all of what you just saw. We have 19 total recommendations. We've implemented seven, partially implemented nine, and not implemented three. And so with that, um, that's really what we are, um, when we come up and we talk about issues or, um, or initiatives, we are tying them back to these strategic um, or specific recommendations. And then before I turn it over for questions, a quick plug for Pulse Point. Um, two steps to save a life, call right away, 911, push hard and fast in the center of the chest, anyone can do it. Um, and download Pulse Point, get the app, save a life. It's free. Thank you. Sorry, I'm not Thanks, McKenzie. Uh, great job on the presentation. I just wanted to add uh, one last comment related to this process. And um, it is a challenging process, as you've seen, all the items that go into it. Um, again, I, I would, um, we, we challenge ourselves every day uh, in working towards getting better uh, within uh, our organization. And um, I'm proud to say we're one of 300 agencies uh, in the world that are accredited. And so it is tough. Um, but, um, you know, I, I often reflect and I often reflect and um, we talk about this at our regional uh, meetings, but if not a process like this, if not pursuing continuous improvement, if not pursuing accreditation, then what? Then what? So very proud of our organization for digging in, taking the hard look in the mirror, uh, identifying those service gaps uh, in order to provide the highest quality of service to our community and also to the members of our organization. And so that, with that, uh, we'll stop our presentation. Thank you so much. Uh, Mackenzie and I are available for questions that you may have tonight. Are there any questions for the chief and Mackenzie at this time? Just uh, one, you have the three that are not implemented. One I know is you have very little control over. <laughs> um, but I was curious, what is a continued continuity of operations plan? Um, and yes, tell me about that. Absolutely, a continuity of operations plan. Uh, is a function of emergency management. And so that plan is, uh, should we have a failure in our systems, um, how our systems will continue to operate. So we have a continuity of operations plan. Um, it is registered uh, with the Kansas Department of Emergency Management, but we need to update it. And so that's one of our goals this fall, uh, in addition to working with um, the police department and city manager's office and Douglas County Emergency Management for the review of our emergency operations plan, the EOP. And so they aren't the exact same thing, but they are connected. Any other questions? Uh, let's make sure there's no public comment. I think I see some public comment here in the room. Hello, uh, Seamus Albert, and I'm Lawrence 
professional firefighters. Again, I'm stoked to see uh, public safety items on commission agendas on a regular basis, but uh, I really just wanted to speak briefly tonight uh, in support of the accreditation process and, and some praise to Chief and McKenzie and membership as a whole. We've been doing accreditation for years, so I think it's easy to lose sight of just how much work goes into it. And, and, and that we are to a certain degree, degree unique that we are doing it. Um, the work done, the progress made on those initiatives, the, all the data that you all have available to make your decisions at a strategic level, um, that's not necessarily standard practice across our industry. In fact, it's, it's well beyond, it, it's well beyond. What, what I'd like to convey or, or do my best to convey to all of you is that because we participate in this, this process, um, all the recommendations that come to this chamber and all the, the data you guys receive and, and the methodology that's used to make informed decisions about it, all that is going in front of other people. It's not just, it's not just LDCFM. It's going in front of all the other, all our other peers in the industry, right? So it takes being open, as I mentioned, hard looks in the mirror, right? It takes being open with your peers with where your flaws are, where your gaps are. Um, the payoff is, is that we're getting guidance from some of the best minds in the industry. Our ask as a membership is that we don't take it for granted. We don't take it for granted. Please spend time with the accreditation report that, that awesome, just got approved, right? Spend time with that. I think you'll find, uh, I think you might find some things in there interesting, especially when we start looking at some of the history on recommendations and the, the budget requests attached to them, some of the history of past budget processes with those. Please know that um, because we're going through these processes, not just a company wish list of items, everything has been meticulously studied and, and it's been looked at to show the value that could be brought to the citizens and brought to the department. So with that, thank you for your time. Thank you. Um, I don't see anyone else in the room here. Let's see if there's anyone online who would like to comment on this item. There's no public comment, Mayor. Okay. That's making me nervous now. <laughs> I feel like we can't trust it. Um, okay, let's bring it back to the commission. Any other uh, comments on this? Uh, yeah, no, I, it's not many. It's just that I'm just really impressed that we're one of 300 cities that uh, is a part of this process. And uh, I, I think it's quite a standard to uphold and I'm glad we're, we're doing it. Yeah, thanks for all your work on this. It's definitely impressive and and keep us updated. Same, I would I would add uh, two things. One, appreciate you guys have done this for a long time. I know Craig is working on this with some of our other departments and this helps show us the benefit of some of our other departments to do this and, and to follow that along. And second, my wife actually is kind of the accreditations manager equivalent at of place of business and it's a lot of work. <laughs> and so I appreciate all that you guys are, are doing to put into this. Um, but I do think you, you, you do see how it makes consistent and continuous change. And, and so certainly we support that and appreciate you bringing it to us and, and, and bringing these things to our attention because I know we have 
our part to play as well. So thank you. Yep. Thank you very much. Um, and this is just to accept your report. So I don't think we need to make any motions. Uh, but again, thank you, Chief. Thanks, Mackenzie, for being here. It's really important. Thank you. Um, that brings us to commission items. Commissioners have any item, items they need to bring up? Might just I, say, oh, go ahead. But I was gonna say, um, I have one to bring up. We had a group that with the kerfuffle with the Zoom, they weren't able to get on to provide um, a public comment, but um, there were some representatives from the Lawrence Juneteenth um, shoot organization that wanted to provide comment and share. So I did share with them during the break that they're more than welcome to attend the meeting next week to um, to speak on that matter. Um, but I, we can only imagine what <laughs> they're coming to ask us for. And I just wanted to make sure that, you know, that I just share with everyone on the commission about that so that we can prepare ourselves and, and be ready to have that discussion next week. Yeah. I just want to um, just add, we just got back from our Northwest Arkansas um, conference and we brought back a lot of great information and saw economic development through a total different lens and I'm excited to see where this takes us. Greg, real quick, is there an opportunity for us to, to speak to that Vice Mayor Larson to continue that momentum and not lose space, but maybe have an opportunity to meet with our counterparts in Topeka just to have a conversation or at least to figure out, imagine what that work could look like. I know that was one of the things that we talked about um, on the travel back and with the group is that we didn't really, wow, I mean, we were hit back and forth with with opportunities to, to engage with um, local electeds there in Arkansas and with their chamber and with that council, but we didn't really get the opportunity to to speak collectively with our cohorts. And so I, I don't know what the plan is or if there's a plan to decompress from all of this, but I would love to have an opportunity, whether in person or virtual, to decompress with our, our counterparts in Topeka. Sure. I, um, I, I think it we all observed at how well organized that whole trip was and Topeka has been doing this a long time and through their chamber and in partnership with our chamber. And so I would be surprised if there isn't some kind of a systematic follow-up that they already have in place, but we will certainly follow up on that working with our chamber to uh, see what we can do to, to really engage them in the value that we, we all experienced. Yeah. I I asked that question. My understanding is there's going to be a written component and then a, another you know, follow-up meeting, if not two, on that, that the chambers will, will lead. But I agree. I think it'll be a good time to. My note, notes are long and messy. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit, I'm still looking for our family. <laughs> <laughs> Um, on along the line, since we're on this, uh, uh, Commissioner um, Sellers, you know, groups with items they'd like to publicize that are positive opportunities for the community, they can come and speak at our public comment and and warn us about them. For example, the monarch butterflies and and uh, items like that. It doesn't always have to be complaints and criticisms. It could it could also be positive things that the community wants to talk about that we don't already know about. 
that. And it's definitely an opportunity to publicize um, things that are coming up and, and prepare the community for um, things they can um, be involved in. So I just thought I'd throw that out. Um, next up is our city manager's report. Thank you, Mayor. The, there's only one item on here. It's just uh, your uh, upcoming agenda items. I do regret that we moved back the um, uh, the kind of pre-look at the budget and some uh, basic revenue projections. We we're moving that to the 17th, um, just trying to get it right and getting it getting it. Um, uh, to you all in a way that will be the most useful to you and, and to, to us as we're preparing to uh, bring the budget to you in July. Um, there's a lot on here. As you can see, we're going to have a very busy next couple of months um, and we you're seeing more of these presentations and they do take a lot of work to try and bring to you so but I think that's the right way for us to go but uh, we try and keep this as solid as we can and not make any changes but when they come up um, we're still trying to um, be a quality make it make it quality and accurate when we bring it to you Are there any other, um, I think there's some times that commissioners are going to be gone. Does anybody want to make sure that we know when those are and if you'll be calling in or since we're going into the, sorry, into the, pardon me, let me just erase that. Are there any comments on the city manager's report, <laughs> which is a public comment item? <laughs> nope. Anybody online? Not seeing anything. Okay. Now into the calendar. Uh, any calendar items for commissioners? Um, I am going to be out of town, take my daughter to an orientation on June 7th. Um, I will be, uh, my plan is to be online for that meeting. Um, but I do have a uh, ribbon cutting that day. That I might need someone to take if anyone is available for that. Um, but I will, I will, so I'll be remote at that meeting, but I plan to call in that night. I think Vice Mayor Larson. Yeah, I would take that if you, I got to be gone July 7th and I've got one then. Do you want to switch? Yep, I can do the July 7th. Okay, great. That's somebody's birthday. It is my birthday, <laughs> but that's okay. Hey. Um, I plan to be gone on May 10th, so our next meeting. I do plan to be remote, so if that changes by the end of the week, Sherry, I'll let you know. And I will not be at our July 12th meeting, and I do not plan on remoting in because I will be celebrating 100 years of my sorority, and so I will be painting Indianapolis royal blue <laughs> and antique gold. So catch me on social media. So I am um, um, at this at this point, I had planned on zooming in on the 17th of May, but I'm now trying to figure out a way to push that back so I can be here because I think that's a really important meeting given the topic changes. So I'm working to try to push my stuff back a little bit. I will make a note that that May 10th meeting, I will be on East Coast time. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go, so don't go late. Is that what you're Just saying? If we're enacting the 11:30 rule, we're using East Coast time. East time or Central time? We're using Eastern time on that one. All right. Thanks, everyone. Uh, I guess that brings us to adjournment. So moved. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye.
Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Mm -hmm.